Do you want to know more about how you can eat for better health and longevity and how your diet and lifestyle can play a part in chronic disease? Then you're in the right place. I'm Claire Day. And I'm Daisy Lund. And we are both plant-based doctors with a passion for improving nutritional education. In this podcast, we will bring you all the latest medical evidence on how a plant-based diet can improve your health whilst being kinder to the planet and fairer to the animals that we share it with. Twice a month, we bring you interviews from experts in the field with a focus on an important topic related to plant-based health, all while sharing recipes and food ideas. So welcome to, in a nutshell, the Plant-Based Health Professionals podcast. So welcome everybody. Hi Claire, how was your week? Yeah, it was good. I've been busy talking to both patients and other healthcare professionals this week about the benefits of plant-based eating. And um, having those conversations with people is really great because you actually learn what people feel are the barriers to eating more plants. Uh, only really through having these encounters and these and these conversations. And I really find that that is what helps me to develop more effective ways of communicating about it and actually more efficient ways because we don't have much time in our consultation and if we're more efficient with it we can get more kind of impact in the next time we have a similar encounter with a patient so this week I think in particular I've really enjoyed sharing the PBHP plant-based health professionals leaflet on reflux because it's such a common condition and we deal with it so much as GPs. And actually, rather than just sort of sending the link and saying, oh, there's this, there's this leaflet here. But actually, sort of when you say to somebody, have you, you know, have, have you tried the lifestyle advice? And they always say, yeah, I've tried everything. But when you actually go through the points in the leaflet, it's really useful on, on, on reflux and things like that. You know, there's things in there, not just about diet, but about things like tight clothing. And I was having a conversation with a patient and she was wearing really tight trousers and she was coming in with a, you know, with a, a particularly bad episode of reflux. So we talked about that. And, um, and I thought, yes, I'm, I'm actually feel like I'm, I'm chipping away at people one by one. So it's been a good week. It's brilliant. So you're getting it into the consultations, but you actually did a presentation as well. You haven't told me about that. Oh, my presentation. Yes. I had the opportunity to talk to a group of nurses all working in the locality. So not just at my GP practice, but at some of the surrounding GP practices as well. And it was, you know, starting a conversation with them about how they can talk to patients about eating more plants. Now, of course, as soon as I started talking asking them what they found difficult they said we don't really have time to talk to people about diet but then when we went into the layers of that it was apparent that even if they did have time there was quite a few things that they didn't know about plant-based eating so you know I think we do need to sort of go in there and educate a bit more and then start lobbying for them to have more time because I think if they had more time at the moment we might get a bit too much of the kind of cut down on pineapple if you're diabetic, low carb if you want to lose weight, um, and and uh, not really focusing on the fact that fibres only in plants and we don't really need to worry too much about protein, you won't be deficient in it. So going over those points and actually finding out what they knew was really, really interesting as well. Yeah, that is interesting because we've always talked about us as doctors not having nutritional, much nutritional education. I, I don't know whether nurses do or not, actually. I'm sure that when they're training, there's a lot of focus on the Eat Well Guide, which, as we know, it hasn't been updated in, in several years. And they're definitely not aware of the messages around processed meat and red meat in the sense of they were pretty much on message of we need to cut down on meat. But in the same way that we talk about alcohol, where we'll talk about, you know, having alcohol in moderation, we're not actually saying to people, you should have your 14 units a week. We're not actually saying to people, you should have two portions of red meat a week, but you might find it written somewhere, try not to have more than two portions of red meat a week. And um, they're very, very nervous about the cost of plant-based diets. So I was very conscious when I was talking to them about, you know, how they can actually suggest to patients how to cook a shepherd's pie more cheaply using lentils things like that things that to us are 
really very much second nature when you've been plant-based for a long time. But if you're talking about some to somebody about being more flexitarian, you really do need to be feeding in those recipe ideas as well. Yeah, definitely. I think cost does tend to be something people obviously worry about and tends to be a barrier. It almost sounds like we need an episode on barriers and, and you know, debunking certain myths. Yes. Yeah. Well, there's a great um, at the beginning of this month, there was a great webinar, which I caught up on on the plant based health professionals, which was exactly that it was together with the vegan society and of course uh, Rahina Bajekal it was covering something like 10 myths of plant based diets and how to debunk those. Oh, brilliant. I missed that. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Um, so this episode today, we actually have got an expert um, who does know all about plant-based nutrition. I'm really excited about this particular episode. We've got plant-based health professionals member and registered dietitian, Rosie Martin. Rosie actually studied zoology before becoming an expert vegan dietitian. And she now works both in the NHS and as a freelance dietitian. It was lovely to hear about her journey to veganism and and her career path equally. And we asked her all our questions on plant-based milks, ensuring adequate calcium intake on a plant-based diet and bone health. We should mention that Rosie has also recently written a great article on plant milks, which can be found on the Plant-Based Health Professionals website. So we'll put a link in the show notes to that. Yeah, it was a really good episode because I think, you know, plant-based milks and the topic of dairy is still quite confusing. Um, you know, I remember the, the very limited nutritional education that I received at medical school back in the 90s. When we were taught on bone health, you know, we were just taught calcium and calcium equals milk. And, and that was it. And I think, you know, those myths still perpetuate both in mainstream education, but also in the media and advertising. And I think, you know, very few people know any sources of calcium beyond meat and dairy. Yeah. And it was something I had to learn. It took me a while to educate myself and learn about other sources of calcium and how you how you get those sources on a plant based diet, um, as well as the fact that there's much more to bone health than just calcium. And here I'm talking about the vitamin D, the weight bearing activity, the resistance training and avoiding too much caffeine and alcohol um, around mealtimes, alcohol generally but also not smoking and avoiding the extremes of BMI. So not being too thin or too heavy. Yeah, I'm still learning actually about that because I read recently somewhere about salt as well, too much salt having an impact on bone health. So just constant learning, isn't it, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's why we need that episode on bone health, but we'll get to it. Yeah. But just sticking with milk and dairy, which was the focus of, of today, you know, I think it was important to mention here about um, a bit more about dairy, actually, because, you know, I remember growing up as a child reading books, uh, one in particular that I remember because it had the same name as me. It was D- Daisy the Cow. Mm. I remember this quite vividly because obviously we shared the same name. And, and and the book perpetuated the myth that Daisy the cow was happily munching on grass in a huge, beautiful field. And somehow that grass was converted to milk for us. Um, and, you know, and I lived most of my adult life never really questioning that. Yeah. And, you know, on that, I was thinking about not just what 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 you see you see as a child, but I saw a film not too long ago and it was about some kind of uh, apocalyptic event and uh, a woman had survived and she just sort of had a cow and a dog. But the, the cow was seemed to be sort of endlessly providing her with milk. So, yeah, you you know, you see that all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, where where does this milk come from and why, you know, why is the cow being milked? I, I don't want to go into too much detail on this podcast, but the artificial insemination does occur under restraint and that leads to pregnancy. And obviously after that nine months, the, the calf is born. And, you know, I, I just hadn't really thought about it as an adult, to be fair, until um, I did my own research. You know, when the calf is born, it's quite quickly removed from the mother so that the milk that was meant for her calf is collected and and sold to us as humans. Yeah. And I think when you've sort of looked into this, you're all you'll always be aware of the distress that that causes the mother and um, any animal that's separated from their calf, you know, whether it's an elephant and calf being separated, it's the same for cows. Mm. And um yeah, I, I I find it. I think I think you know we talked we talked about this and whether whether it's appropriate to talk about this in a you know in a health related podcast. But 
it is very much about having an understanding about what the food chain is, where food comes from, whether that's where a crop is grown, how it's been transported. I think we do need to think about this process that's happening to allow humans to drink milk. And, um, you know, the fact that us taking over that supply of milk means that the calf itself doesn't have that supply of milk. So they're put on to bottle milk replacement uh, powder and, um, yeah, and and, and the, sh- the sheer distress that's caused for those two beings, those two sentient beings, is is quite overwhelming, I think. And the fact that this process needs to repeat itself over and over again. Um, it's not the case that as long as you keep milking a cow, she'll keep producing milk. She needs to keep going into calf and um, eventually she won't be able to do that anymore. She'll sort of hit the cow menopause. And um, and then it's at that point that, that her life will come to an end and she'll be slaughtered for meat. And that, you know, the, the lifespan of a cow, obviously through that process is is reduced a lot. They they live to on average six years. If they were having their natural lifespan, you've got an animal that would live to twenty years. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right. I think we do need to know where our where our food comes from so we can make the right choices. If cows, you know, are milked when they're impregnated again, which is what happens, they are in this cycle, as you mentioned. There are concerns about how much estrogen and female hormones are in that cow's milk. And how hormones in dairy foods, you know, what impact that might have on public health. You know, certainly we know that cow's milk is essentially a substance that's meant to grow a baby cow into a large animal. So it is quite full of fat and and sugar and hormones. And sometimes, you know, when you think about it as a species, we are the only mammals that drink another mammal's milk into adulthood. So you sort of do do need to sometimes think where, where our food is coming from. And I think... You know, there's an obvious problem here as well is that there's not when you when you impregnate a cow, it's not done with sex selection. Obviously, if it's a if it's a female calf, uh, it may well go back into the sort of dairy industry. But the male calves are a problem. So if you are wondering what happens to the calves. Well, ultimately, I mean, if they're male calves, they're, they're killed. So they're, they're transported or sold for veal or, or killed at a very, very young age. So, you know, to say that the dairy industry doesn't involve cruelty or slaughter can't be further from the truth. I think it's it's interesting, given the vast majority of the adult population are lactose intolerant. I think it's about, what, 70%. It does make you wonder why we are so obsessed with dairy. And I think it's because we're taught from a very young age, as I said, that we, that we need dairy for calcium, that we need to build strong bones. In fact, I'm from a generation, I don't know if you had this at school, Claire, where you'd get these free milk bottles. Mm-hmm. We did. Did you? And, and I think Rosie mentioned it as well when we interviewed her. We were Well, I was forced to drink this this milk. And I remember it being warm and I hated it. And, and that's when that indoctrination began, really, that misinformation. We were told that we had to drink this, otherwise we wouldn't grow properly. Our bones wouldn't be strong enough. There was a huge political outrage, I think, when Margaret Thatcher stopped it. And she, you know, the, the slogan was Margaret Thatcher, milk snatcher. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. But, you know, there are studies showing that countries who eat the most dairy having the highest rates of osteoporosis and bone fractures. So... Really, I think we do need to to wonder sometimes why we we were fed that information. You know, for balance, we should mention there are also studies that did find um, vegetarians or vegans at higher risk of bone fractures, but they didn't take into account diet quality. And that's really important because being vegan or vegetarian doesn't automatically mean you're healthier. We know there are quite a lot of, you know, vegan junk foods or heavily processed vegan foods. And people, you know, eating that sort of food may, may be at risk. So a lot of the data from those studies also comes from the 90s, where knowledge of what a healthy whole food plant-based diet should be or what it should look like wasn't as widely available. The knowledge just wasn't there. Plant-based milks were perhaps not fortified. And supplements like B12 and vitamin D were not as widespread. And another message that came out was that there was some association Uh, due to low BMI, which we know is a risk factor for bone fractures. So as a plant-based eater, especially in women, you need to aim for a BMI in the middle of the normal range and avoid being underweight. Focus on your diet quality and take your vitamin B12 and vitamin D supplement. We do need to educate ourselves about where to get our calcium from plants. And there are so many great 
sources, which we do go into some detail of with Rosie. Yeah, we do. Rosie mentioned some low oxalate vegetables. I had to look that one up actually after the interview. Um, Oxalate, I found out, is an organic acid found in some plants that combine to calcium in the gut and hence reduces absorption. So spinach, for example, is quite a high oxalate green. So even though it's got calcium in it, may not be as absorbed as well as the lower oxalate uh, green vegetables, which are high in calcium. And those are things like kale, broccoli, and bok choy. And interestingly, the bioavailability of calcium from low oxalate vegetables is still higher than that from dairy. So uh, that was good to read. And I also found out that boiling these vegetables might actually reduce oxalate levels as well. So that will help with calcium absorption. When I when I look at calcium levels in foods, it always makes me a bit scared because I've never been one for sort of obsessing about how to exactly balance my diet. I just think about it as food. So I just trust that I'm kind of doing things right. And when you read about these things and you think, well, you know, it is possible that somebody at the extremes of the diets who's not who's not eating middle of the range, it's it's good to know Mm. when you might be at risk of of dropping your calcium level. Yeah, no, I mean I agree with you. I don't obsess or or look at quantities as such. I I think I've done it a couple of times and then I know where the main sources are or what you know what I'm doing right, what I need to add a bit more of. And then like you say, just sort of live live the life I think the the one thing I did notice though I did look at the back of the pack of cauldron because I was really glad mm. that Rosie mentioned soya products um being quite high in calcium especially um calcium set tofu which I love I love the cauldron brand and um I tend to eat about half the packet for dinner mm. half half a block um definitely do you yeah. well? okay good oh gosh <laughs> yeah <laughs> But so, I mean, you know, as we said, we're not getting obsessed about numbers, but that half a block of cauldron tofu has got 800 milligrams of calcium and the UK dietary requirements of the 700 milligrams a day. So that's already over and beyond your daily requirement. So it's just really nice to to see that and go, actually, yeah, this is um, something I should incorporate regularly. And I do. Mm. You're glad you mentioned tahini, aren't you? I am. Um, I've, you know, one, one thing I've been doing this week is, um, I've discovered the delight of maybe just having a piece of wholemeal toast and I've still got some homemade blackberry jam left over from the summer, not too much sugar in it. And I then drizzle it with tahini because, you know, I'm a massive fan of tahini. So, um, it's good to know that I'm, I'm boosting my calcium levels. I thought you were going to give us a, a savoury tahini recipe because I was going to give you a sweet one. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, savoury. Yeah, well, you know that I pack tahini into, um, if I make a salad or something like that, I'm a real fan of using tahini, mixing it up with various various things, garlic, lemon juice, and uh, drizzling it on a salad. I, I really love doing that. Or adding sesame seeds just over the top of something, you get the same slightly bitter taste. But as long as you're having it with peas or some edamame beans, it's a really yeah. delicious combination. Lovely. What else did she mention? She did mention beans and legumes. I tend not to think about them as calcium sources, but it's always good to know. And I was particularly impressed with the amount of calcium in fruit so um, oranges apparently 40 milligrams in an orange well that's yeah that's not bad is it I hadn't thought about that one yeah and uh you know because normally I'm stuffing my orange down thinking oh if I have this orange it's got my vitamin c I'm going to absorb all my iron from food because we've talked about that combo before yeah yeah oranges for the win um, yeah. And of course, you know, we, we talk about uh, fortified foods, so plant milks, and we'll go on to more detail in, in the episode. Shall we go to the interview now? Yes. And as always, before we do, can we remind listeners to please help us grow the podcast by either rating or reviewing, hitting the subscribe button and sharing it with your friends. We really appreciate this. And we've had such lovely reviews on Apple Podcasts. It's worth mentioning here. Thank you so much. It makes the world of difference to know you're listening and enjoying and that we're not just talking to to each other. Okay, welcome Rosie. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Given you're a registered dietitian, please can you tell us a bit about your journeys being plant-based and how your work might have shaped your views on diet? Absolutely, yeah, thank you. So I actually went plant-based and vegan prior to training as a dietitian. My background was zoology. I loved animals growing up. That's what I wanted to to work with. So 
I worked in zoology for a little while. And then I think I was always fascinated by nutrition. I think that was probably because I had celiac disease since I was nine months old. So I always had that knowledge that what I ate had an effect on my body. And that was always an underlying interest. And I started experimenting with veganism when I was living in Sydney and I was working in zoology. I found YouTube videos and things. And I thought, oh, I'll give this a try. And that was for health. And so I gave it a little try, but I actually stuck to it once I learned more about things like the animal welfare aspect. And I actually experienced significant health changes and benefits from going vegan. And so that's what brought me to want to study it further. And so that's when I worked really hard to, to change my career and actually study it properly so that I could learn more about what happened to me, but also to share that knowledge with others as well. Brilliant. And so are you working entirely with the BDA now or do you have many different roles? So I have many different roles actually. So I work as I've specialised in a few different areas in the NHS, oncology um, and IBS, but I now work for NHS in occupational health. So my specialism now is really staff health and wellness. So predominantly in uh, the, the main things I see are weight management and IBS. Those are kind of the two big ones that people want support with. And I use plant-based nutrition as part of that. And then I have my private practice on the side, which specializes in veganism and plant-based eating. So I'm currently focusing on supporting people with weight management, but I do a lot of general practice too. So people who maybe want to be vegan or more plant-based, but don't feel confident, or perhaps they've got a medical condition and they haven't felt supported by people they've seen, healthcare professionals they've seen maybe in the NHS or privately, or they just want to improve their health. So that's, that's a lot of what I do. And for the For the BDA, my main role is as research officer for the Sustainable Diet Specialist Group. So I get involved in a lot of projects around trying to increase the awareness of diet and its impact on the world around us, particularly with dietitians in the membership as well. And then the rest of the time I do bits of kind of writing, a little bit of consulting for companies or organisations that align with my values, including Plant-Based Health Professionals UK podcasts like this one and then kind of blogs and then free stuff on social media to support people who want free information and to kind of myth bust and get tips and tricks for free. Wow amazing that sounds like (laughs) a really varied week. It is yeah I do love it. (laughs) I'd be interested in asking you a bit about education for dietitians because you mentioned that you were plant-based before you actually became a dietitian and Is there increased recognition about the benefits of a whole food plant-based diet and indeed the harms of meats, particularly processed meat, in education for dietitians? Because I see on the BDA website that meat and dairy are still listed as protein sources. Might that change in the future, do you think? So, yeah, I would love to say that it's recognised. And I think from a processed meat and cancer point of view, I would say that it is becoming more so based on the World Cancer Research Fund recommendations. But I do believe it's not given the airtime that it needs. Absolutely not. I think a lot of the talk around it is just reducing it rather than avoiding if they talk about it at all. If I remember rightly, when I was at university, so that was eight years ago now to do my postgraduate in nutrition and dietetics, there was one lecture on vegetarian and vegan diets. And that was just to help dietitians adapt their recommendations for patients who follow those dietary patterns rather than actually promoting them. So we may have mentioned some of the benefits of it, but it's not actively promoted for those reasons. I think because it was eight years ago, I found my training quite frustrating. I think at the time I had this quiet confidence that what I had learned myself was right, but I was a novice in nutrition at the time. And I was surrounded by lecturers who had been working in nutrition for a long time. So I wasn't confident with it. I kept quite a low profile in terms of veganism and I didn't have the personality to start questioning everyone. It wasn't really me. So I kind of sat back and worked through it. And unfortunately, I still don't think it's being promoted. I think we are heavily influenced by culture and by industry. And the nutrition and dietetics courses are not exempt from that. But I I am hopeful of change in the future. I think the sustainability side of meat and dairy are probably the most accepted in dietetic training. But we're really only at the beginning of uh, introducing that to student dietitians. And one thing I will say is that there are more dietitians involved in the world of plant-based eating now 
when I qualified, I knew no health professionals who promoted this. So we can see it growing, but we also can't get into a false sense of security because it's not being recognised or it's not growing fast enough, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that mirrors our experience, isn't it, with medical education and um, things are changing slowly in medical schools, but um, not quite 100% there yet. It's not become the norm yet, unfortunately, and that's where we need it to be, isn't it? So given all this expertise that you've got, we wanted to talk to you more about milk specifically, because Lots of sources are describing milk as a superfood and they're urging us to go for full fat options. And some of them will be groups that people listening to this podcast will have heard of, speakers on groups like Zoe. So what do you say if somebody asks you about the health pros and cons of a diet that includes dairy? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think the first thing to say is that when you really think about it, drinking the milk of another species is actually a very strange human behavior. So starting off in the in the context of that, but the research on dairy from a health standpoint is actually really mixed and it's filled with bias probably on both sides. So I can't sit here and tell you that if you drink a bit of dairy, it will ruin your health or definitely give you cancer. But in the same breath, it's absolutely not required for human health. And it also contributes significantly to environmental breakdown and animal distress. I think the dairy industry has done an amazing job at telling people they need dairy for bone health which is simply not true. We were influenced at a very young age with uh, milk subsidies at schools. I remember sitting in my classroom when I was probably about five or six years old, given bottles of milk. So really it's nothing more than a, a marketing campaign rather than scientific fact. And it's interesting to note the Canada Food Guide has actually removed dairy from their dietary guidelines for the population. And this is partly due to their refusal to be influenced by industry also because dairy is just not necessary. So looking at the bigger picture, I do actively encourage people to move away from their reliance on dairy products and choose alternatives from plant sources, which will then also be lower in saturated fat, won't have the bovine hormones because dairy cows are kept pregnant whilst they're milked so that they can continue to produce milk until they're slaughtered or growth factors that help baby cows grow into large mammals. And these growth factors may be associated with cancers like prostate cancer. And there is evidence that swapping to soya milk from dairy milk may also reduce your risk of breast cancer. And I've seen a figure up to 32% on that as well. So it's quite significant. And I think it's important to mention here that your health isn't made up of one particular food that you do either choose to include or not include. It is made up of your dietary pattern. So if your diet is really varied, high fibre, plant rich, you may not feel any immediate health impacts of consuming a dairy unless you have a specific problem with it, like lactose intolerance, or perhaps it triggers acne or eczema for you or other skin issues. But there doesn't, again, in the same breath, it doesn't appear to have any particular benefits if you have an otherwise balanced diet. But given that 70% of the global population are lactose intolerant, for many people, dairy is just not an option. And I think coming back to my zoology, we're actually the only mammals who drink milk into adulthood, let alone the milk of another species. So all other mammals lose their ability to break down lactose. They lose the enzyme lactase, which breaks it down. And therefore, for them, it's just normal that they become lactose intolerant after weaning. And it's thought that it was actually a mutation in humans in some human populations that meant it was beneficial for this food source to be available to us to survive. But I think looking at where we're at now in the modern world, it it is something I would actively discourage. Now, obviously, the global figures on lactose intolerance are quite scary. And we get a lot of patients coming to us saying, can I have a test? Because I think I might be lactose intolerant. I don't think there is a specific test that we can offer them, but I might be wrong there. It's certainly not in primary care. So Would you recommend these patients trying a dairy exclusion diet? What would be appropriate, do you think? Yeah, that's a really good question. So if someone is struggling with gastrointestinal symptoms, and, you know, we talk about the global population being 70% being lactose intolerant, it is lower in the UK. But if you are struggling with difficult gastrointestinal symptoms, things like diarrhea or constipation, gas, bloating, those sorts of things, Once we've ruled out anything underlying, for example, celiac disease or inflammatory bowel disease or malignancy, then we do look to diet. And that's where I would come in. 
And dairy is often something we can consider because lactose is a short chain fermentable carbohydrate that can cause some gas bloating and changes in bowel habit for some people, particularly people who are struggling with, with symptoms of IBS. There are lots of intolerance tests out there on the market with fancy websites, tempting promises. But what I would say is please don't take them, keep your money, because unless you've actually got an allergy, we can't take one simple test that'll tell us if we can digest milk or not. So in that case, I would recommend removing dairy from your diet for at least two weeks and it's important to look at all the aspects of your diet and where milk might pop in and it's better if it's four weeks if you can and then monitor your symptoms and see if they improve if your symptoms do improve then it's the re-adding of dairy back into your diet um, and then symptoms returning that confirms um, an intolerance if of course you want to bring it back in but it can be helpful just to know and confirm it so that's what I would recommend now I know it's not your area of expertise but I did want to know whether you could just clarify for people listening what the difference is between an intolerance of dairy and an actual allergy. Yeah of course so I would say that a milk allergy is an immediate immune response to the protein in milk. So these proteins bind to specific IgE antibodies, which trigger immune defences, basically, in our blood. So that would lead to symptoms quite quickly, like vomiting, diarrhoea, rashes, raised bumps on the skin or swelling of the face. And symptoms in that case can range from quite mild to quite severe. A lactose intolerance is a difficulty in digesting the carbohydrate rather than the protein. And we don't, because it's a digestive thing, we don't get an immediate immune reaction because there are no antibodies specifically triggered in the blood. And therefore, that's why we can't do a simple blood test to check an intolerance, despite what the intolerance testing companies would have you believe. And I'm, I much more commonly see lactose intolerance compared to milk allergy. Milk allergy is rare in my clinic because it's much more common in infants. I believe around two or three percent of children under three have a cow's milk protein allergy. In fact, I've only seen one adult male that I can remember with it in my clinic, and he had absolutely debilitating symptoms. And it actually took a long time for us to work out what was going on because it just wasn't at the forefront of our minds. Mm. We talked about the global prevalence of mm-hmm. lactose intolerance and it being 70% and it probably being lower in the UK, whether there was any specific groups that we needed to be more suspicious of intolerance or allergy with that i would say that people who have it in the family a history of allergy or things like celiac disease or other immune conditions um or gastrointestinal infections those sorts of things can be at higher risk so those are ones to to more look out for i would say So Rosie, in addition to the health implications, what other impacts of dairy would you say there are in terms of the environment or animal welfare as well? So in terms of thinking about the environment, there are a lot of difficulties in getting that information out. I don't know what goes on behind closed doors and it's probably purposefully kept behind closed doors but there are huge barriers to the environmental and welfare messages that are getting out there when it comes to dairy. And in terms of one of my stories, I won't name any companies on this podcast, but I have been censored by a dairy company myself. I was commissioned to write an article for dietitians on plant-based milks and dairy, including some of the sustainability aspects. But once the article was complete, I was asked to remove the sustainability research on cow's milk compared to plant-based milk, simply because it didn't go in favour of dairy. So I pulled out because I just wasn't up for the scientific evidence that I was presenting being censored. So that's just one example of the influence of the dairy industry. And I think that it's a massive shame to see it as environment versus economy, because, you know, surely one of the most important things about the economy is to keep it viable um, and able to survive into the future. And so I believe a shift is beneficial for both environment and the economy. Plus, we put so many subsidies into meat and dairy as well. The UK government spends, I read, at least £1.5 billion a year subsidising livestock farming. 
and that's 10 times the UK's annual budget for planting trees. So distributing that money or redistributing that money is really a no-brainer. So one example is we could fund fruit and vegetables to make them cheaper for, for consumers and improve diets across the nation as well as reduce our impact on the planet. And we'll always need farmers to produce our food as well. And with less meat and dairy, we'll be able to rewild so much land that we need. And we need guardians of that land as well. And in fact, a 2017 study found that 85% of the UK's total land footprint is associated with meat and dairy production, but only 48% of total protein and 32% of total calories derived from livestock products. And globally, that's 70% of land producing only 37% of protein and 18% of calories. So we can do so much better. And absolutely, dairy is one of the environmental problems because it has a much bigger impact. You know, a lot of people talk about the environmental impact of almonds using loads of water. But when we compare it to cow's milk, it's still lower. You know, making that switch from dairy to almond milk is still more beneficial. And that's the that was the information that I presented in that article. I think there will be jobs in a thriving economy without meat and dairy. Um, it's not one or the other. Yeah, definitely. And if people do want to make the switch to plant-based milks, can you tell us a bit about what they should be looking for in the products that they buy? I would recommend choosing plant-based milks that firstly you like. I think that's one thing that's left off the table quite a lot. I think it can take a bit of getting used to to start with because they do taste different to dairy so give them a chance and I'd also recommend unsweetened varieties to limit the extra sugar that people might be having. The next thing I would say is to go for plant milks that have been fortified with calcium so it's a really easy way to keep the calcium higher in your diet because they're fortified to about the same amount and the benefit of these is they are actually also often fortified with vitamin d and b12 and occasionally iodine as well so i would say unless you're striving for higher protein intake for example if you are an athlete an old adult if you're unwell or you're struggling to eat then we don't actually need to get protein from our milk the higher protein milks are soya and pea milk at around three grams per hundred mils. But if you're consuming a varied plant-based diet, then milk isn't required as an extra for protein. Actually, very little of the population's protein comes from dairy milk. The majority comes from our food. And as we all know, all proteins contain all the essential amino acids that humans need to make proteins as well. I think if you go organic, then they can't actually add much to it. So they likely won't be fortified but if you prefer these I would recommend ensuring that you have alternative calcium sources like calcium tofu dark leafy greens and the other nutrient that we want to think about is iodine so dairy milk is a source of iodine but this is only because iodine is added to cattle feed in fact the more a cow grazes on grass the lower the iodine content of their milk so if you're concerned about things being natural in inverted commas then iodine in, in milk, in dairy milk, is no more natural than if we were to supplement ourselves directly, which is what I would recommend. When we think about the idea of a whole food plant-based diet and trying to have things that aren't processed, what about the th thickeners and emulsifiers that you find in plant milk? Is there any good way of reading the ingredients list for that one? Yeah, that's a great question, a really big topic at the moment as well. We're learning more about ultra processed foods and the impact they're having on our body and also our brain. But it is my position and the position of the BDA as well, that the amount of processing is not always directly related to the healthfulness of a food. So yes, if your food is a concoction of processed ingredients with high levels of fat, sugar and compounds, you know, maybe you don't recognize, then it's unlikely to promote health. However, many of our foods do go through processing so that we can consume them and they can be beneficial in that way. For example, canning, cooking, mashing, fermenting, and it doesn't mean that they're harmful either. So we need to look at the nutritional profile of the final product and look at what it adds to our diet. In the case of plant-based milks, many of them are predominantly water mixed with a bean, nuts or grain of some kind. Some beneficial nutritional elements often added, like as I mentioned, calcium, vitamin D, and then often there are only small amounts of things like oil thickeners or emulsifiers that help them become more palatable for our tastes. So unless you go organic, in which case you can find some very simple ones, which are just the water and the bean or nut. 
Um, I think it's a mistake to go down the route of natural always being the better option. There are many natural things that are not good for us, like poisonous berries or mushrooms, and many unnatural things that provide benefits like supplements for someone with a deficiency. In the case of emulsifiers, there has been some research to say that they could impact our microbiome, our gut microbiome, so all the bacteria that live in our gut negatively and potentially cause some inflammation. I can understand if someone chooses to avoid them based on their own preference, perhaps if they have a gut condition or if they are more at risk of a gut condition like IBD. I don't personally ask people to remove them yet until we've got more evidence because this is often one of the easiest ways to meet their calcium needs and long-term bone health is so important to consider for all ages and I think if you're including plant milks as part of a whole food plant-based diet you're already going to have a lot lower um, additions of additives and emulsifiers and all of those things where we get a lot of them from in our diet. Yeah that's true I would agree with that. We were talking about calcium and the worry that people have on a vegan diet about meeting their calcium requirements. Although some of the plant-based milks, as you say, have calcium added and we make this assumption that people will make a switch from, say, consuming the three glasses of dairy milk a day to three glasses of a fortified milk. If you're not doing that, can you just highlight again what foods we should be looking at and how to get to what the recommended daily amount is for calcium, just, just with some examples? So calcium is a, a big one when it comes to dairy. A lot of people do worry about that and, and we have touched on it. So as you say, switching to a fortified plant milk will give you pretty much the same amount of calcium, about 120 milligrams per 100 mils with a really similar digestibility as well. To top up... I would say you could include things like calcium set tofu. So this is probably one of the highest levels of calcium that I found in any single serving of something. So if you look at your tofu and it says calcium anywhere in the ingredients list, it's going to give you quite a good dose of calcium. But also plant-based foods like dark leafy greens, low oxalate ones like kale, broccoli, watercress, Brussels sprouts, oranges, almonds and sesame seeds as well. A healthy adult in the UK is recommended to get 700 milligrams of calcium per day. So to reach your 700 milligrams, you, you probably need to have maybe 200 mils of fortified plant milk in the morning in your porridge or smoothie, maybe 100 grams of tofu and then 70 grams of kale with your lunch or dinner. If you fall into any of the at-risk groups like I do with celiac disease, or if you're postmenopausal or breastfeeding, for example, then requirements can go up quite significantly. So in this case, thinking about adding extra glasses of milk, perhaps turn it into a hot chocolate or a latte, or pile up some more leafy greens, or you can bring in things like tempeh, beans or chickpeas into your diet as well to give you that extra calcium. Those are great examples. I was just going to say, Claire, because you love tahini, don't you? Oh, I do. Yeah, Daisy brought me some very special tahini. Actually, oh, nice. It's a gift. Small oh, gift. lovely. Because that's yeah. like just all crushed sesame seeds, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty much. Calcium. Yeah, it's like peanut butter, but but made with with sesame seeds. And my local supermarket actually haven't had it for weeks. And so I was up. I was on holiday last week, up just up in the north of the county, and I went to a supermarket there, and they had it. So I stocked up on about three or four jars of it because yeah, I love it too. I mean, tahini, is that something I keep wondering? Is that something I could be blending my own with a big pack of sesame seeds? Possibly. You know, like when you make cashew butter yeah. and you literally just yeah. grind them up and it sort of turns into a butter. Yeah. I wondered whether I had the right sort of, you know, within my spice blender or something, I could actually start knocking out the tahini. You could <laughs> yeah. absolutely try and let me know how it goes because that would be really interesting. <laughs> if you've got a good blender, I don't see why not. I'll send you a jar. <laughs> yes, please. Right. Sticking with bone health, what other things do you advise with regards to improving bone density and protecting against fractures, looking at people at different ages and what they should be doing? So you're right, it's not all about calcium. We need many other nutrients in our diet for bone health. For example, vitamin D helps us to absorb our calcium, but then also things like vitamin K, magnesium, protein is also important. And these are all very accessible if we follow a, a balanced and varied diet. One of the key parts of bone health is actually strength exercise as well. So up until about one or two years ago, I never picked up a weight. I ran and I did yoga, but I was never very strong. And I actually fall into an at-risk group when it comes to osteoporosis because I'm a small female vegan with celiac disease. So I actually started climbing a couple of years ago and I, 
I can't believe the progression I've made. I actually didn't, I categorize myself as someone who just didn't do strength exercise, but the strength that I've built is predominantly fueled by my desire to, to keep my bones healthy as I get older. So our bones are building up and breaking down constantly. And from the tender age of just 30, when we reach our peak bone mass, which I passed a few years ago, we actually lose more bone than we build. So it's important for everyone. So if you're younger, you want to be aiming for a higher peak bone mass. And if you're older, you want to be helping yourself to maintain the bone mass that you have. And so putting load onto our muscles, which puts loads onto our bones, helps them to adapt and remodel and strengthen because they adapt to pressure. So if they've got more load, they will become stronger. What I would say here, I'm not obviously a physio, so I'd say definitely start small to avoid injury and build up your weights and you will do your bone health and your health later in life a world of good. I've seen a, a, a message on Instagram recently saying instead of building your beach body, lift weights for your old lady body, which and I just love that and working towards my old lady body. So in addition, we want to minimise behaviours that negatively impact bone health as well. So things like smoking, alcohol and diets that are poor and based on processed foods and high salt foods as well. Excellent. You did your strength exercises today already, haven't you, Claire? Of a fashion. Yeah, I think, you know, I hate having loads of weights lying around. So at the moment, I'm kind of stuck with just these 1.4 kilogram weights in each hand. And I know I've probably got to a point where I could go a little bit higher. But um, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it's that progressive overload, isn't it, that you want? <laughs> Brilliant. Excellent. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I would say to patients, you know, if you're if you're exercising too much, and you're doing too many bench presses, are you literally creating these chronic tears of muscles? But then I was reading that you actually want to break down the muscle cells and use more protein to mm. actually build them up as you're going. Yeah, yeah. because yeah. it's that breakdown that, that triggers that building of, of muscle fibre. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Rosie, it's been really fascinating. I hope that this has given people the confidence to try plant-based milks and to give dairy a bit of a break from their diet and hopefully with a view to eliminating it completely. So thank you very much for your expertise on this. Before we let you go, though, we would love to hear a little bit about what a plant-based dietitian eats for dinner. So uh, if you give us an idea of what you're having tonight. Yeah, so tonight it's a bit of an unusual night, actually, because it's a work meal. <laughs> so it's going to be a little bit different. And I don't actually eat out that often because it can be a bit tricky with being vegan and being gluten-free. I don't not eat out I definitely do and I when I was on holiday last week I took the opportunity to do that so tonight they have sent me the menu I've got a sweet potato and red pepper hummus to start hopefully they'll give me something to dip in that and then they've got a Mexican bowl for my main so I think that's black bean and sweet corn salsa edamame guacamole sweet potato with pomegranate molasses spicy rice rocket and chipotle tomato salsa so it's a bit unusual but I, I would say normally I'm not actually the best at preparing proper big meals. I do batch cook maybe once a week. For example, I've got into the habit of really regularly going for a Buddha bowl where you can just choose a whole grain, choose the veggies that you've got, um, choose which protein you fancy and then pop them together with a delicious sauce. So I often go for something like a tofu or tempeh with a tamari and maple syrup sauce and then brown rice and a selection of veggies that I've got in the fridge that week. And I love it. So it's all good. I, I love that too, because I think it's really highlighting that eating plant-based is simple. You don't have to make it complicated. It doesn't have to be a fancy recipe. Absolutely. Yeah. I think when I first went plant-based, I, I did follow a lot of recipes and kind of learn how to put things together and have a bit of a learning curve with it. I think once you start to remove the idea that you need the meat or the cheese or, or whatever in there, and then once you get into that mindset, it becomes really easy to, to throw things together and to know the different proportions of your plate that you want to fill with certain foods. Um, so yeah, once you've got a little bit of knowledge, it becomes a very easy way to, to live and, and a lifestyle to take on. Yeah, I agree. What about you, Claire? You always have fancy recipes. <laughs> well, I'm thinking as you're talking about the confidence in throwing things together, because I'm probably going to start by making a bolognese sauce. And I'm either going to use that with some whole wheat spaghetti, or I might actually make a lasagna because for me, it's the same kind of base. Mm. But I will do a mix of the chopped carrot, the celery, the chopped onion to do that uh, soffritto, as they say in Italian, or, or mirepoix. 
mm, for our lovely. French listeners. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then you add to that a bit of red wine. All the alcohol will be gone through the cooking process. And usually some vegan Worcester sauce, some passata, and then you pick your protein. And I think tempeh is having a moment with us, mm. isn't it? So I might actually shred up some tempeh and put that in but sometimes I might use a can of lentils or just some regular textured vegetable protein and as I say if I make if I get as far as making the lasagna I'll do a cashew bechamel sauce sometimes a layer of spinach in there as well and um yeah that sounds really nice that sounds amazing I wish I was coming to your house (laughs) (laughs) It's a bit of a track. interesting good. what you said about using whatever protein sauce you want, because actually mm. in a ragu sauce, you can sort of modify that. So deliciously, Ella's got a recipe where she just uses chickpeas. I'd have never thought to make a bolognese with chickpeas, but it works really well. Yeah, exactly. It's about thinking outside the box, isn't it? And actually just thinking, okay, what high protein plants can I add in here? And there's a good variety of them that you can choose, for, choose from and, and choose your favourites. And this is probably why I, I don't do as much preparation is because I love getting to the end of the day and just thinking, what do I feel like? What do I really want? And often it's, you know, might be some tempeh. I might really feel like tofu instead or a pile of beans with the with the bowl. It's a really nice kind of freedom and flexibility to think about what you want. Mm. Daisy, what are you doing for dinner? Well, my recipes have to please a, a teenager, so they're often <laughs> a little bit more family friendly. But yeah, I am doing one of his favorites, actually, which are tofu fajita wraps. So we used to do a lot of chicken fajitas when we were eating animals. And we've now changed basically all our chicken recipes are now tofu, which works really well. So I'll cut some tofu into strips and I'll just marinate it before in some paprika, chili, garlic powder, salt and pepper, and then I coat it with corn flour and pop it in the air fryer as I put everything in my air fryer. And they come out really good. And we'll have that with guacamole or salsa and veggies on the side, lots of coriander, lemon juice, and just, yeah, we can just wrap it up as we go along as we're eating. Um, Amazing. You're giving me lots of ideas. I love this. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's that's what we like about the podcast sharing recipe ideas <laughs> brilliant brilliant so I think we're going to wrap things up there thanks so much for talking to us about the milk issue I'm sure there are other things we want to talk to you about Rosie but if you're if you're good to us you will come back on I will absolutely yeah thank you Rosie. I love talking about this stuff so absolutely <laughs> that's great thank you so much thank no you worries. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We aim to bring you the most up-to-date evidence-based information about the benefits of a plant-based diet and we'll add all the links for further reading in the show notes. Please remember that everything discussed on here does not constitute individual medical advice, so please consult your healthcare provider if you have any medical concerns. In the meantime, please subscribe to the In A Nutshell podcast on your usual streaming service and download our future podcast for free. And since food can be the best medicine, don't forget to share us with all your colleagues, friends and family. Until next time.